This is the day you have trained for. The day you have studied for. Utilize your superior skills. Your superior intelligence. Sit down, Rodent! Sarah, baby! Oh, you were one fly! Don't make me hurt you. Learn to defeat your ruthless enemy, Steve of Hackensack. Ryan, you're gonna get rude. Shut up, Quadruped. Welcome, everybody, to episode three of Game Crimes, the life and afterlife of the Sega Dreamcast. I'm one of your hosts. My name's Jay, and I've been smoking the type of weed that gives me NPR voice. I'm joined by my friend. Uh, hey, um, <laughs> I, I, I never expect to be introduced on podcasts. That's my thing. It's not a bit. I'm Mike Bachman. I'm just going to leave the silence in. Yeah, do it. No, no, no. Stretch it out. Chop and screw the silence for the real heads out there. There's some more for you, baby. (laughs) We're talking the Sega Dreamcast today. One of the most, uh, I don't know, mythical consoles you could imagine. Certainly I can imagine. And we're going to be talking about the history of the Sega Dreamcast. But mostly it's going to be a celebration of the console itself and the community that has kept it alive. So Mike, do you have anything to say before we get all rowdy? Yeah, I thought we talked about the Dreamcast last time. That's a little inside joke for y'all. (laughs) <laughs> we fucked up three separate recordings um, <laughs> i love the dreamcast it's my baby um i mm-hmm. have i spent more hours on the road trying to find a dreamcast in the early 2000s than uh <laughs> than i do i have i have driving to work in my entire life for real no oh let's get to it life that's that npr voice shit i'm talking about yeah 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 mm, from npr news in washington i'm dave mattingly <laughs> welcome to marketplace i'm kai Rizdal. <laughs> you ever been lost inside of a bank vault because you mistook it for your father's bedroom <laughs> i've got my hand caught in a safety deposit box but more on that after the break <laughs> Sega started as Service Games. That's an American company, by the way. Ooh. Formed right after and around World War II. It, it's pretty strange. They're they're based out of a couple of different places, but mostly Hawaii. And are desperately trying to sell their pinball machines and gambling machines to the U.S. military. But instead, the U.S. military was like, nah, it's cool. We're going to do something else. And then Sega had to diversify. They started moving into different markets. They started moving into uh, mostly East Asia, Taiwan, Korea, Japan. I noticed you got in here that the the government banned slot machines in the in the 1950s. Well, I believe it's military bases on their territories, but Oh, okay. But there are states also banned slot machines on a state by state level quite frequently, and pinball was illegal for a very long time as well. 
Huh. Why is that? It was seen as a mob-related activity, and a lot of the gambling machines were seen as fixed. But in reality, it was one of those, like, Christian crusade Bible-thumpy things. Hell yeah. You know how it is, baby. <laughs> History requires context, and if you live in the Midwest, that just means Bible guys did something. <laughs> That's so fucking true. <laughs> the problem is, moving into that East Asia territory was a rocky road, especially for a company that is based out of Hawaii. And so the company is forced to split in the 1960s, the early 1960s, when the federal government of the U.S. finds it's up to some not-so-legal business in those foreign countries. You get two daughter companies that that pop up as a result, Sega of America and Sega of Japan. So in case you're wondering, it's already strange from the start. You've got this origin of this company that doesn't really know what it is, seems to be started by a couple of American entrepreneurs that had an idea and maybe a little more money than they knew with what to do with. And instead, it's growing overseas as sort of this weird <laughs> game slash crime related company. So... And that's not really how we think of video game companies right now, right? I mean... Right, yeah. So were these two... The two companies, were they autonomous? Or they was there still, like, a structure there? I believe they were both owned by a holding company that was unrelated to Sega, but the holding company's holdings were nebulous, and so it was kind of hard to figure out exactly who owned what. Okay. Okay, because I always, I always assumed that Sega's structure was, like, a... Well, I guess I'm assuming that this is Nintendo's structure, but like mm -hmm. Nintendo of Japan being on top and then there's like the Nintendo of America or the other territories like just being underneath that umbrella. From the 60s to the early 80s, you had Sega existing in this completely bifurcated form as two separate companies. And they essentially did that to get the federal government off their ass. They, they had to say, we absolutely have nothing to do with each other. Sega of Japan has nothing to do with me, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But in the early 80s, when the company is purchased by a conglomerate of mostly Japanese investors, that holding company buys both of them and kind of integrates them into the same structure. Like all corporate history, it's very, very murky. The first time that Sega is making a game, like a straight-up game trying to put a computer game together, is in the late 60s, and they've got all these extra parts, which is why they decided to get into the game-making business, but... Game making wasn't super profitable at the time, and they had a real bad piracy issue in their Asian territories as well. And that is the reason that Sega gave for pulling those games from the market. So Sega at first only existed for a handful of years and then flopped, making other pinball or arcade-related, gambling-related machines, etc. There's this arcade craze that starts in the late 70s and kind of stretches into the early 80s. And in 1984, a conglomerate mostly led by this billionaire Japanese plutocrat buys a majority share of a holding company that buys both Sega of America and Sega of Japan. His name is Isao Kawa. He's essentially the eternal chairman of Sega up until 2001, and he is really the heart of this story. So we're going to fast forward from the 80s all the way to 1996, which, by the way, is generally considered to be one of the more successful period in Sega's history, the, the mid-80s to the early 90s. But when, in 1996, Sega is struggling. They are dead in the water. Their newest video game console, the Sega Saturn, is locked in a two-way war with Sony PlayStation and the Nintendo 64, with the Saturn being the clear loser. And for the most part, it was Sega's fault. They shipped the console to U.S. stores before the formal release date without actually informing their retailers or marketing partners. 
they built multiple arcade boards that could not be easily ported to the Saturn, made a bunch of arcade games on them, and then came out with really substandard ports because the systems weren't compatible. That's despite the fact that Sega's highest selling games were its arcade games. And so Sega's up against the wall, they're feeling threatened. The media narrative is supposed to be that when you have a, a console war, one person wins and then there's another generation, right? And then the, the war starts all over. Right. But Sega is instead thinking more about whether or not they're going to survive into that next generation. They tried to merge with Bandai in 96 and 97, and it was the erratic moves of Sega's upper leadership that got that merger pulled off. Meaning that suddenly they're scrambling and their main game console business is failing at the same time. It's like, you know, you know, like you're trying to buy a car from like from some like crazy eyed old man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you can't talk numbers because he's too busy, like scrawling what seem to be random letters on a brick wall. (laughs) You're just walking through the street having a normal day when Ice Cube from the Sega Saturn magazine ads where his head is a planet just kind of walks up to you and is like, hey, have you thought about Sega Saturn today, man? Hey, man. <laughs> hey, man. And you're like, no, I'm just going to go home. Sorry, Ice Cube. That's what it's like. You've got this this guy coming up to you, this, this company coming up to you going, hey, what can we do for you? What can we do for you? If I had a nickel for every time I had to apologize to Ice Cube, <laughs> I, I'm just going to get another one out there. Ice, Ice, I'm sorry, man. You know what it's for. NPR voice activated. So they plan for the future, and that means two brand new arcade boards, the Naomi and the Model 3, each capable of, say, cheap and easy home console ports. They do everything they can to iron over those strained relationships with retailers by just, I don't know, kissing ass in meetings for that long. That's kind of the only way to do it. Making promise after promise, etc., etc. Most importantly, that 3D Sonic the Hedgehog game that was really always, always getting there and always gonna come out for years and years and years and completely eluded the Saturn would be there on the Dreamcast for day one. Sega's R&D team splits into two different projects, one made by the U.S. team, one made by the Japanese team. The U.S. team developed something to a, similar to a mid-range gaming PC at the time with the help of graphics card manufacturer 3DFX and then weird communication PR issues between the two companies cause the 3D effects to completely back out. So the Japanese project, which was made by computer manufacturer NEC, also responsible for the TurboGrafx system, is put into development, but they keep one thing from the U.S. development team, which is a Windows design and development environment. Something that'll make that system way easier to develop for than the Sega Saturn's notoriously fussy development kit. So they seem to be doing everything right, and it seemed to represent a fresh start, which is where the Dreamcast name came from. It was originally called the Katana or the Black Belt. They wanted something a little more hopeful and a little more future forward. I think it works. Personally, oh, yeah. I, I can't think of another game system that looks anything like this. It, it looks like a toy from the future. Yeah, it's a, it's a rad name for sure. I, I love the aesthetic. I love the sort of pale white and the bright colors. I'm a big fan of the design of the system itself, which is very weird and angular and curvy, but also so small you can just hold it in your hand. There's some other stuff that was rumored to be included in the Dreamcast that I don't think ever showed up. A Saturn emulator and some form of backwards compatibility for Saturn games. That's that's wild to me, because like yeah. <laughs> Saturn emulation still isn't figured out fully. 
Like, <laughs> so the idea that they would be able to do it on something like a Dreamcast, like, I don't, I mean, I assume that there's some level of shared architecture between the two at some, at some degree. I would assume. Yeah. And also, um, Sega's M2 team, I, I, I don't think they were M2 at this time. I think they were just the, the R&D and development team. Mm-hmm. Their software emulation developers are the best in the business. I mean, if you've ever played like any of the Sega Ages collections on like the Switch or the PS2, they are incredible. And they must, like, now that I'm thinking about it, um, from installing the, the Terrangian mode in both of them, you open them up and they look very similar, and they also have, like, the same connector for the optical drive and things like that. So mm. I, there's probably many more similarities that I don't know about below the... There's a Ben Heck video where he does a teardown of the Saturn, and during that he talked about, like, Sega's actually got this, like, weird history of, with each system taking their CPU from the previous system and putting it in the new one as as a secondary chip for some other function of the system. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's kind of bizarre to see like they it they they follow it from uh from the master system at least through the uh through the Saturn. The Saturn has the uh has a processor from a previous system. I can't tell you exactly which one cuz I don't remember, but yeah, there are weird systems underneath the hood, for sure. Some of the rumored inclusions, like liquid cooling, would have made them incredible. I mean, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that were suggested at the time. A wireless hotspot for cell phones? Oh, geez. Maybe if uh, they had included liquid cooling, uh, you know, Surge would have been able to stay on the market because they would have, <laughs> you know... <laughs> you got to cool it with something, and what better, what better way to cool your system in the late 90s than with a icy cold can of Surge? <laughs> So you know how, um, you know, in some places you might, uh, especially in the more uh, poverty-stricken areas, you might be, um, you might think of people that, like, break into houses to take all the copper piping out. Uh-huh. I think that, like, in 10 years, in some alternate future where the liquid cooling does exist, I'm just, like, breaking into GameStops to drink the Dreamcast juice and stay alive. <laughs> Cracking that liquid cooling open and, and seeing what happened. It's a, a, a windfall for your personal survival, but a huge tragedy for game preservation. <laughs> I am games preservation now, baby. I am the Sega Dreamcast. You slowly morphing into a bad 3D model of Tails with like awful mouth movement. <laughs> this is me now. I've been sitting in the nuclear reactor until I look like a Sonic the Hedgehog character. Did it work yet? <laughs> so I've been reading a lot of old writing, old games writing, magazines, and internet stuff about the Dreamcast. And let me tell you something. All of the media was convinced that the Dreamcast was a failure before they knew a damn thing about it. Like, before it launched, even. Sega is presented as the, like, the wounded animal, the big loser of the console war. The prevailing media narrative was always Sega existed as an arcade thing. They made a, the Sega Genesis, which was successful for, like, three years. They got beat by Nintendo, and then they went into obscurity. But the reality is, the vast majority of Sega's business didn't always come from the U.S. or Japan and a lot of it was based in Europe, actually. They were much stronger in Europe and, than in many of their other territories. Also, a lot of the profitability came from their arcade division, not their console division. I don't know how you feel about it, Mike, but like the, the console war thing is just exhausting to me. It, it's so made up. It's just made up bullshit. For sure. It's, it, it is like kind of endlessly awful. Uh, but it's, <laughs> particularly with, with the Dreamcast, I remember I have, there's a magazine that I found in an old box that uh, talks about the, um, the Half-Life port. They showed the PC version, which PC version obviously came out on top. But they, and then they showed like they had like a two page spread on the Dreamcast version. And then immediately after a two page spread on the PS2 version that's coming out. <laughs> and like, you know, of course, there was no comparison to it. Um, right. They like they showed the models next to each other and everything. And it was just like 
and that's strange because honestly the Dreamcast looks better than any old console ever. I mean, in mm-hmm. modern day with with decent digital uh, video connections, it's ridiculous how clean and clear everything is. Yeah. You know what they were fighting about back then, Mike, is they were fighting about who had the most polygons. And and the Sega had Dreamcast had over 3 million polygons. And the PS2, well, it could handle way more polygons. And I'm just going to throw this out here. If you ever see someone use the phrase teraflop unironically, throw them in the dumpster. Because it's the <laughs> same shit. It's the same shit. It's these weird metrics that has nothing to do with you actually playing or enjoying these things. And it's more kind of like fantasy football for the stock market. Except you don't get rich. You just watch the rich people fight. It's 128 bit. <laughs> Well, how many bits was the PS2? Well, it's the it's, if you consider it to be the next generation, then it would be 200, 250. Yeah, yeah, it's 256 bit. Okay, well, how many bits are in the Emotion Engine? Uh, Steph, go ahead and shorten up the time that it takes me to do that math thing. <laughs> oh, God, remind me what the Emotion Engine is again. Uh, the Emotion Engine was supposed to be the PS2 chip that made the graphics more realistic than the other consoles. Steph, cut out the part where I don't know what the Emotion Engine is, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like endless. Um, Steph? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Steph, could you insert me actually making a good retort here? And then, I, I don't know, just make something up. Um, I gave you the voice box, right? You can you, you got the voice talker? Yeah, just re- reconstruct it from my other words. Basically, <laughs> basically YouTube pooped me into looking competent. <laughs> learn how to speak in my voice and then do lines for me uh-huh. so so here's the fun thing about the console war it drives basically anyone that makes video games and makes over 250k out of their mind completely out of their mind and so the Sega Dreamcast launches in Japan November 27th 1998 and there was already a perception as it being a modest failure about 6 months into its release mostly because it had a shallow software library at the same time, you can find Sega of America executives six months after the Dreamcast launch parroting this same statement. Oh, no, we know that the Japanese Dreamcast launch was a failure. Oh, yeah, we know we didn't do a good job. We know they didn't do a good job. When it launches in the U.S., it's actually like this huge hit. It's this unexpected hit. It does $97 million in the first day of sales on September 9th, 1999. They're, they're holding... A, a red carpet galas and launch parties with Vern Troyer from Austin Powers and Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit. I'm sure other people were there. There must have been. It's, it's just <laughs> Vern Troyer and Fred Durst alone in a room with a Dreamcast playing Choo Choo Rocket. <laughs> One, I, I do have to give a little bit of credit here. The Dreamcast launch party did feature Oakland hip hop legend Del the Funky Homo Sapien, who has a song about all of the good shoot 'em ups on the Sega Saturn. Respect. Sega was cool. Okay, I need to check that out. That sounds great. I watched a whole YouTube video of all the shmups, and I would have much rather just listened to that. <laughs> Is it a complete well, list, or was it released too early? It's not a complete list. It's more like a battle rap with shaming you for not owning like Kyokujin Tiger 2 on the Saturn. <laughs> Which is cool. It's better than nerd rap. I like, I'd much rather the guy want to fight me than impress me. Oh, for sure. It launched in Europe shortly after. It was similarly successful. And the launch titles were very vastly expanded from the Japanese. There were a lot of good launch titles on the, on the Sega Dreamcast, notably Soul Calibur, Power Stone, Sonic Adventure. There were 45 more games promised within that year of launch. 
and they launched a bunch of peripherals too. There's the their Dreamcast memory card, the VMU, is essentially a tiny Game Boy that's also a memory card. It's so cool. There's the fishing rod for the Dreamcast fishing games, which I'm not joking are absolutely worth your money. Uh, I I beat Soul Calibur on Ultra Hard with one of those things. <laughs> Why did you? Oh yeah, um, I th- I think I had seen something like online about somebody beating a game with a fishing co- a fishing controller. It may have even just been Soul Calibur, and I was like, that can't be hard. Um, <laughs> and so I I fired up I fired up my boy Nightmare, and the mm. only difficult part about it is that like the way because you know like the buttons are arranged in that half circle around the analog stick, mm-hmm. and so you have to you have to kind of cross your thumbs to hit some of those buttons or switch what thumb you're using the analog stick with, which is weird. Um, so if I wanted to effectively crouch and block at the same time, I had to pull the stick down and with just a little bit of my thumb so that I could, that same thumb could also press the block button. There's a lot of technique to this, but, uh, but I made it happen. Pro strats. Uh-huh. We got a couple other cool peripherals. There's a microphone, like built one that you just plug into the controller, mm-hmm. which is great for stuff like C-Man where you, you have like a digital pet, but also was used for online play before anywhere else. I mean, you weren't doing that on the 64 or anything. You also had a broad, like a broadband modem adapter as well as a VGA adapter that which had hooked up to high screen and high def community monitors. Were you not aware that, that hey you Pikachu that microphone actually connects back to a uh, back to a server farm where they hired out voice actors to play Pikachu for each individual <laughs> cartridge? <laughs> it was you know it was, it was wildly short-sighted and uh, inefficient, but that's the way they chose to do it. The Pikachu cam girl conspiracy is my new that's my new um obsession i'll be posting about that online very soon expect some very normal brain thoughts if it had been a 128-bit system maybe they could have offloaded some of that to the local console but (laughs) so this dreamcast launched it was interesting everybody was into it it was new it was different it was hot and then it died Before we get there, we should talk about a couple of games that came out. I, I, have, I have this section marked five games that tell a story. And the first would be Sonic Adventure, which was really important to Sega's launch of the Dreamcast. Uh, at the time, it was viewed as something incredible. There was blue skies. It looked like a Sega game. It was clear. It was crystal clean. Some of the, the level points were incredible, the, the visual presentation. And now it's it's viewed with a decent amount of uh, scorn and derision because, well, there's a YouTuber meme about how Sonic games are bad. And, of course, there's also this ongoing dissatisfaction with uh, Sonic's brand management, Sega's brand management. How do we represent Sega and Sonic properly in our games and our art? That's kind of what people don't like about these games now. I like Sonic Adventure. I think it's fun. I think it's fast. And it's very, very vivid. There aren't a lot of games that look like it. I think my big thing about about Sonic Adventure and it's it's kind of something that's plagued Sonic games like since then is they focus too much on like trying to get you like to play other characters <laughs> that aren't Sonic, which which is fine to a degree. And maybe they do that to avoid, you know, just having to make level after level. That's pretty much just like a, a, a moving set piece. Yeah, I think I, I can tolerate it more now. But when I first played those games, that was what uh, 
what kind of bummed me out was because I'd played the Sonic level and it would blow me away and it'd be awesome and pretty to look at. And then I'd go, it's slow way down and now I'm, you know, tails in a robot mech, <laughs> you know, struggling with the camera. Well, and you can you can see some of the same problems that slip into modern game design too, where it's like there's an overworld and there's a quest system. And... Yeah, yeah. Well, and I also I just just kind of out of curiosity, I just pulled up the um, the launch trailer for Sonic Adventure, and they don't show they don't show anything but Sonic levels. Oh, of course, of course. Which that like, <laughs> which you know probably at the time that was the other thing that you know made me feel like uh kind of like a bait and switch was happening was that you know it's like here's here's all these ads that are like look at how awesome these Sonic levels are and they are, but then then okay you're gonna slow way down and and search for some emeralds with some bad rap music. There are things about Sonic Adventure that don't work. Like the mouths. <laughs> oh, no, they work fine. That's the best part. <laughs> if you can approach Sonic Adventure as sort of like a charming B-movie, I think you'll enjoy it. I think it, it does actually hold up. But yeah. be warned, Mike is right. Like, for someone like me who wants to just be presented a new level after I beat a level, it is teeth grinding to have to talk to 17 NPCs in a Sonic game. Speaking of talking to 17 NPCs, the next game I have on here is Shenmue. Oh, boy for you know for me not wanting to talk to npcs in sonic i fucking loved it in shenmue <laughs> give me more well shenmue is like it, especially with the magazines that was the one that was supposed to to do it for the dreamcast that was the mythical killer app the holy grail the golden goose i mean it had a pedigree it was created by yu suzuki whose games history is i don't know that's that's a long ass cv and it was essentially presented as a virtual fighter RPG, but presented as a movie with movie presentation. And I think you can see it now as a prototype for games like Dragon Age or Yakuza. Absolutely. But it also got delayed a lot, like for years. And the mass audience didn't always know what to do with a game that's mostly about like going to work. It's very normal. It's, I described it as a normcore RPG in my notes, and I stand by that. It, but it is a fascinating game. It's a very unique and uh, Mike, I know you love it, right? Oh yeah. Well, I, so I have never played uh, I never played Shenmue 2. By the time I got access to that game, I I had kind of gone back to Shenmue a couple of times and I I kind of I felt like I had outgrown that um that kind of style of game. Mm -hmm. I I felt like it was going to just feel too dated to me, so I never went back. Um and turns out Shenmue 3 came out and it's you know it still feels dated uh but at the time it was like they're just i hadn't played a game that had that kind of like th that kind of minuscule like granular world building you had to care about every little thing in that environment and it was so fascinating to be presented this this i wouldn't say realistic or whatever but it's presented in a very um human way in, in a way that games aren't usually presented games are about like cool fantasy worlds and shenmue is about fucking getting bored at work and, and needing to pay your bills for the most part it reminds me of that like that like old simpsons goof where they like go to the fair and there's like a vr booth and they're like i want to play yard work simulator <laughs> <laughs> it was very much that where it's like it was so interesting to me to be doing mundane things in a video game that i that i i went through it so when they said drive this forklift i was like yeah that was fun and then the next day when they said drive this forklift i was like okay i guess i mean it's my job <laughs> I think the preponderance of games like Stardew Valley prove that that's actually just normal, right? People like that stuff. People yeah. like seeing human-related stuff in their work. But that's one thing I think Shenmue is actually quite good at, is trying to look different and trying to seem different from the other games at the time. I mean, all the other RPGs on the system are absolutely like Final Fantasy but pirates, Final Fantasy but 
you're killing the Pope. And, and those are all good, don't get me wrong. This is just a totally different thing. The next game on the list, Jet Set Radio. And if there is one game in the Dreamcast that I could say has developed a feverish, slobbering cult following, it's got to be this one. It's this beautiful cartoon-like 3D game with uh, polygons presented as uh, cel-shaded cartoons. There's a lot of like Japanese fashion stuff in there. A, a soundtrack by the Beastie Boys record label, which, if you didn't know at the time, is like the premier indie record label of the mid-90s. But there's nothing like this game. It was just cool. It was cool in the way that things were cool at the time. There's an emphasis on graffiti and hip-hop, but it's it's very multicultural and very bright and sunny. The bad guys are cops. I can see why people are drawn to it, because it's very different. I think it resonated, too, in, like, a post-Tony Hawk landscape. You're not doing the tricks, but, like, the style is there. But I, I have to say, Mike, I'm a sucker for Jet Set Radio. That's, like, one of my favorite games. Yeah, for sure. Half of the bands in that game soundtrack, I went on to, like, go buy all their albums and see them in concert and shit. So it was the absolute target audience for a little nerd like me. <laughs> but I also think that there's something that's going on right now where people are trying to get a new Jet Set Radio made or kind of like revive that style. It's never going to work, even if it is nice or cool, because Jet Set Radio was about what is cool outside of video games. It wasn't about replicating some other video game. Right. If you want to make something cool in the modern day, you have to pay attention to the world around you. And that's one thing that Sega always did really well. It's just fun. Jet Set Radio Cup falls in that time where there was like a shift aw away from skateboarding and into inline skating. There was like that weird little window. And like, you know, it was all about like, it was all about like soap shoes and like, you know, all that, that kind of stuff. And if you were to make, if you were to try and make a game that does the same thing that that game did at that time, it's going to look like a completely different game because everything's different now. Yes. You know, I don't, I don't know anybody out there trying to trying to whack wax up a ledge for their for their inlines you know like <laughs> yes and, and frankly it would take someone cooler than myself to know what that is right like, exactly because cool is a cultural thing what sega was doing was looking outside the world and going what can we introduce to video games that will take people off their feet and catch them off guard as opposed to what previously existing art is good and how can we recreate it especially like growing up in the midwest where you're like you know, your idea of taking a, a individualistic, uh, like personal cultural stance is like Led Zeppelin sucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it's that sense of being at reaction with the world around you instead of trying to find something. Yeah. Jet Set Radio was like that. Oh, this is what, this is what's happening in, in the big cities. If I were to go, I would see this happening everywhere. People skitching with like a, a potato sack full of paint cans. To me, that's like a vision of a better world. Speaking of Res, the next one on our list, that is a very future forward game. It's got trance music, surrealistic computer graphics. It's, it's an old fashioned rail shooter like Space Harrier or Panzer Dragoon, Star Fox. I'm always going to have it associated with Sega's work at this time. And I think a lot of people do because it's very unusual and trippy and pretty and, and all that fun stuff. But the reason why I put it on this list is because despite its critical accolades and its, and its notoriety, it was actually never released in the United States. And there are a ton of games that were never released in the United States. And so I feel almost as if all of the, the important quote unquote Dreamcast games or the must play Dreamcast games have kind of been like community selected. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. The highest rating reviewed Dreamcast launch game was the Midway Boxer Ready to Rumble. 
what was good at the time is definitely not what people consider good now. And that very much affected which, which stuff we got to see. The only thing I remember about Ready to Rumble is like the one character had like a line when he when he won a fight where he goes, I'm so unbelievably good. <laughs> <laughs> when the Shonen anime is hitting that hard. How did you feel about Res? Did you ever spend a lot of time with it? I, I didn't. I didn't at all. Um, I I still haven't spent a lot of time on it. Um, I I kind of like it. You know, I don't know. I, I just I never got a hold of it. And then like every time I've had the opportunity since then, I've feel like I've seen enough videos to know what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of like something I just keep putting off. <laughs> I view it as like the foundation for a lot of games that came after it. And I played those games that came after it. So it's yeah. like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like a bunch of people, like people talk about how good the princess bride is and, and, and maybe, but like, I didn't grow up with it. So when I tried to watch it at like at 32, I, it didn't resonate with me at all. And finally, Fantasy Star Online, which I consider to be basically Sega's swan song to the Dreamcast. It was the last big release. It was released at the same time that the uh, that the Dreamcast was announced as being canceled and, and not being back out of production. Same month, which is just a hoot. It was actually really successful. It, it was a lot of people's first experience to online multiplayer because the Dreamcast was the first console to make that widespread. And uh, the game is still alive today, the Dreamcast version. It's still playable. Sega Sega took down those servers in, I think, 06 or something. And people still keep it up, which I think is just fascinating. And, and Mike, I know you've got your uh, stripes on PSO, right? I mean, if you consider, like, over a thousand hours stripes, then maybe... <laughs> That's a whole lot of stripes. Yeah, no, that's a lot of stripes. Uh, it's not all in the Dreamcast version, because um, I actually started this game uh, via the GameCube version. Mm. I didn't get into the Dreamcast till well after its life, and around that time is mm-hmm. when I picked up all the uh, all the games I could get my hands on, and played a decent amount of uh, of of PSO on the Dreamcast. Probably like four hundred hours on that system. Yeesh. Without any online connectivity, that was all solo. <laughs> <laughs> so there were definitely better ways to to play that game that i didn't get access to although the game uh, is is great i mean it's it is it is i think it's an, one of one of these stellar games that really has been forgotten as as a little more formative than people see it lovely game oh and the and the colors okay i'm getting <laughs> it's like i love the color scheme i love uh-huh. the the ui i love how strange the the player costumes are it really is just trying to be its own unique little thing Right. Absolutely. And I mean, you get like you play through the difficulty levels and you get to a point where like all the monsters change and it's just like it's got this. it's I've I've always been a sucker for like loot grindy Diablo style games. Um, so mm-hmm. having those having that eternal slot machine of just like things drop, things drop, things drop and you pick them up and and get them identified like that type of stuff always gets me and having something I could easily play with friends just kind of cemented this game into my uh, my Hall of Fame for sure. Highly recommended. And like, if you pay attention to the quests, it's like, uh, uh, my my wife brought the wrong groceries home. Can you go down to this planet and like get <laughs> us some raw meat from the na- from the native animals there? <laughs> Blessed. Yeah, it's so good. It's, it's precious.
the death. The Dreamcast formally dies as of January 31st, 2001. The writing was on the wall. People were predicting that this was coming, like I said, before the Dreamcast even launched. Instead of making you have to dive through those headlines, I'll give you the real headline. And the real headline is that the second Dreamcast died. Because on March 31st, 1999, Sega is listed as being $2 billion in debt with a loss of $378 million in that fiscal year. Before the Dreamcast even came out, Sega cut 25% of its workforce, closed 100 of its arcades across the globe. The Dreamcast was a latch-stitch Hail Mary effort by a company that was in its dying days. And you could see the warning signs of what caused this death very, very early. A couple launch titles, Sonic Adventure, Sega Rally, Virtual Fighter, a couple more, that are facing some sort of critical development issue after being released to the public, meaning that you have to reprint new discs and, and do rebates, etc., etc. Some of these games missed the Japanese launch. Uh, something like Virtua Fighter had to have multiple pressings. So you have the software library that is, of course, incredibly promising, but isn't coming out as intended and doesn't function. And it's not too long before Sega of Japan is using this as a way to say, oh, you know, we need to stop making consoles. And their game plan long-term was to stop making hardware and start developing games for other systems, Nintendo, uh, Sony, etc. I grew up reading all these game magazines that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and the Dreamcast was the shit. It was so good. It was cheap. It's $199 on release. The games were out of the box, $30 to $50. The entire system was incredibly multiplayer friendly. Despite all of this, despite me, the consumer, going, oh, God, the Dreamcast is absolutely the best bet. You can find the the higher upper brass at Sega saying things like, well, you know, the Dreamcast is a failure and we're going to have to start thinking about something else. As they're launching the console, the console war has brain poisoned these people, these people who have a lot of money. <laughs> and... and the U.S. president of Sega, Bernie Stoller, is worth talking about in that light. Right. He's an interesting guy. Sega vultured him away from Sony and their PlayStation division. And he fought very, very hard from his American office to fight for the modem in the Dreamcast system. As well as the, the Windows software development. kit. Some of the things that have really endured and made the Dreamcast impressive over the years are from him. He's also a nasty vulture capitalist, and he loves being in the media. He's a, he's a media hog. And so, you know, he's, he's fucking stuff up by talking. He's fucking stuff up with EA games, and suddenly there's no Madden on the system. There's no EA games. There's no Maxis. There's no Bullfrog. There's no Origin. There's, EA is one of the largest publishers of PC games at the time. And even though their system is PC ready and good for PC ports, they've alienated the largest PC publisher there is. This is a good case study when you imagine like, you know, when Reggie was still with Nintendo and you hear Reggie talk and it was just like this endlessly optimistic uh, voice, even when things were bad. And you knew that he was just feeding you lines of BS. And so it was really, really hard to not like roll your eyes uh, when he would say some things. Um you know, like, oh, when's Mother 3 coming? Well, we know that that's something very important. It's like, okay, you're not working on it. Like, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Except then you you see this as a case study of, well, like, what if you don't do that? And what if you're open about, like, <laughs> that the system's failing? <laughs> it's like, that doesn't work out well either. So it's it's finding that lesser of two evils, and I'm not sure that there's a clear winner. I think that Sega giving up on the Dreamcast is a trend. 
I really do. Um, it's not just, it's not just a corporate policy. It's something that came with time. And you can see that near the end, Sega just kind of stopped giving a shit. Games like Sega Rally and Virtual On weren't even published by Sega in the U.S. They were published by Acclaim, for God's sakes. <laughs> just because they didn't want to bother localizing them. Arcade games that already had localizations. And if we go through the list of games that are were being developed for the Dreamcast and didn't come out, or you know ports that were canceled, it's a pretty long list of some very impressive games. Castlevania Half-Life, Jet Set Radio, Panzer Dragoon... And along with a ton of arcade ports on the Naomi system that never quite made it over either. I was really surprised to see black and white on here. A game that you mostly play with the play with your mouse gestures <laughs> on the I am I, a loss to figure out how that would work. <laughs> you just played this recently, but the, the Might and Magic 3 Heroes of Might and Magic 3. <laughs> um, another example of a PC game being ported to the Dreamcast. And it's like, well, this technically works, I guess. But it sure is awkward. Yeah, I don't like a five-second load time just to switch between menus. <laughs> Hell, just to switch between options within a menu sometimes. Yeah, geez. It's, it's not good. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, the Dreamcast was successful in the sense that it had a very high uh, favorability with consumers, and the Dreamcast sell-through rate from console to game is pretty strong. But it was also a failure. It failed. It, it wasn't as successful as you might think it was. The PS4 has sold 100 million systems. The PS3, 80 million systems. The PS2, 155 million systems. The PS1, 102.4 million systems. The Sega Saturn, 9.26 million systems. And the Sega Dreamcast, in its brief two years of existence... Sold about as much as the Saturn. It sold, it sold about 10, 10 million Dreamcasts. Which means you're in love with a capitalist failure. A big old whoopee cushion. When we turn the Dreamcast into a place of community, like gamers have, it's kind of worshipping something that sucked and failed in the eyes of a lot of people. And Sega goes, alright, it's time for us to start making games for other systems. They start doing so. They've got all these Dreamcast games that are getting ported and sequels to Dreamcast games that are getting ported. And they weren't good enough. Sega was purchased up by a different company shortly afterwards, meaning that the Dreamcast failed and Sega failed at the same time. It just, it died. It all kind of died. For a lot of people, let's say in the gaming magazines or, or game historians or whatever, the story kind of ends there. But... For us, that's where the story starts, because there are a lot of people to whom the Dreamcast meant a lot more than just whether or not it was successful in the market, and they weren't going to let that damn thing die. Before we get there, I'd like to have Mike join me for a reading series here. Sure. Game Crimes reading series. Yeah. We don't, we, this is the first time I've let you in the reading chamber. Usually, you, if you listen very closely and turn the volume up on your speakers, you'll hear a, a very distinct banging 
on a, on a cabinet door. Uh, Jay says that they don't let me in, but the truth of the matter is that they don't let me out. Yeah. Uh, I'm kept in a locked cabinet uh, under guard uh, with, with many security cameras, which if you go to our website, you can watch at any given time. And it's just, I'm just not allowed to hear it. I have to wear headphones that are wired to my jaw. Uh, 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 what did I say about the word cage? I think it's called a gamer cube. <laughs> yeah, not not a game cube. We tried that and I wouldn't fit. This is a gamer cube. <laughs> For this installment of the Game Crimes Reading Series, I'd like to read a piece by Stephen Kent from Next Generation Issue 78, June 2001. It's titled, In Memoriam, Isao Kawa Remembered. There is literally no one more important to Sega's history than Isao Kawa. He died two months after the Dreamcast was discontinued. And this man is one of the biggest capitalist oligarchs in Japanese history. At the height of his empire, he controlled 90 separate companies within the Japanese economy. He had billions and billions of dollars. The funny thing about a billionaire like Okawa is that you might think he got there because he's a really smart businessman. But in reality, these rich people, for the most part, like to use their influence in these corporations as sort of like a, their own personal garden, their own toolbox, their toy box. And Sega was often just kind of this weird, overgrown technology company with a bunch of things overlapping with each other and not always contributing to the same projects. Profitability is always the goal, I guess, in a capitalist system, but not necessarily to people who have more money that they can count. And in reality, when you look at this dude's life, it wasn't piracy that killed the Dreamcast. It wasn't retailers that killed the Dreamcast. And it certainly wasn't consumers that killed the Dreamcast. Okawa killed the Dreamcast. And the management culture that existed in Sega allowed it to die the way it did. I know that feels strange because that's distant from me. I didn't, I didn't live there. I didn't see any of that shit. That's because I feel powerless when you read why this happens and about this man's life. This man lives in a totally different world than you or I. That has very little to do with the, the, the cultures in which we share video games in. And without further ado... Isao Okawa remembered. Sega's philanthropic president dies of heart failure at age 74. Self-made billionaire, wealthiest man in Japan, founder of CSK and long-term savior of Sega, Isao Okawa died of heart failure in a Tokyo hospital as of March 16th. At the time of his passing, Okawa was chairman and president of Sega. Just weeks before his death, Okawa had made international news when he announced Sega would discontinue the embattled Dreamcast. Making headline-grabbing tough decisions was nothing new for Okawa, a man who parlayed a background in engineering and a sense for technological trends into a multi-billion dollar empire. Okawa's involvement with Sega began in the early 80s, when Paramount Pictures offered to sell the company back to David Rosen, one of Sega's founders. To make the purchase, Rosen put together a coalition that included Hideo Nakayama, who became CEO of the company, and Okawa. When Mr. Okawa heard about Sega, says Rosen, he was very interested and became the leading figure in the buyback. Because Okawa was very busy growing his information systems company, CSK, he took a hands-off approach to running Sega and gave Nakayama free reign. Today, the CSK group includes 90 information and entertainment companies. But in the mid-90s, Okawa became more involved with running Sega. According to Rosen, Okawa wanted Sega to leave the hardware business rather than launch the Sega Saturn. And when the Sega Saturn failed, Okawa placed former Honda executive Shuichiro Iramajiri at the helm of Sega and allowed the company to launch a Dreamcast. In the two years that followed, 
Sega lost millions of dollars every quarter because of poor Dreamcast sales and the sluggish arcade business. When Sega's stock dipped dangerously low and investors threatened to pull out, Okawa advanced the company $500 million from his own personal fortune. What? Yeah, just give the company 500 mil. He, he dug around in his cup holders <laughs> and, found, and found a few $100,000 bills <laughs> that all have Jeff Bezos' face on them. And like, just, it's just like, yeah, that should, this, should, this ought to do it. You know all that console war shit we were talking about? Mm-hmm. What if this dude finds his piggy bank? What happens then? Who wins? Does it matter? Oh my god. Last May, Okawa personally replaced Shoichiro Iramajiri as president. Under his new leadership, Sega trimmed down its arcade operations considerably, even closing a few of its flagship Joyopolis entertainment centers. Earlier this year, Okawa made one more cutback, giving the order to discontinue the Dreamcast and become a software-only company. To help with this transition, he gave back his shares of the company, which were valued at approximately $750 million. It was an incredible gift, said the Sega of America president and CEO Peter Moore. I bet it fucking was. Because that's $1.25 billion with a B. Good lord. Okawa's generosity didn't begin or end with Sega. In 1986, he started the Okawa Foundation, which made considerable grants to the development of information and communications technology. In 1998, he made a private contribution of approximately $30 million to establish the Okawa Center for Future Children in the Media Laboratory of MIT, IMOG. Upon learning of Okawa's death, CSK President Masiro Aozuno wrote, Okawa left to all of us in the CSK group his personal management philosophy that he created himself. It's the people that count. <laughs> and also $100 million each. <laughs> It's the people that count, specifically one people, me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, basically, the 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 optimist the optimist in me is like is like, oh wow, this guy this guy really just loved the company. But the but the the flippancy with which so much money was thrown around, you know, the the realist <laughs> in me believes like, well, he probably just like just couldn't be bothered to deal with the root causes and was like, well, I'll just throw some money at it and that'll get us through these tough, these, these stormy waters or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever worked in like a real um, corporate top down structure, even at like a retail level, mm -hmm. but like, you know that there's so many layers of management, mid management, management, PR management, vice management, et cetera. For a company like Sega, that was all about like, Hey, I have an idea. Can I pitch it? oh, no one came to the pitch, I guess that's okay. Like that sort of weird, disorganized office culture that some of us can see. It really comes down to the dude who's been in charge of it since 84 or whatever. Right. I mean, honestly, that's that's the thing with making yourself the figurehead of an organization like that is that it's failures or your failures. Uh, unless you have a, a billion dollars and you can just slap someone with it and, and, and the failures go away. <laughs> to finish up the article... I am very saddened to learn the passing of my friend and business associate, Mr. Isao Okawa, David Rosen said in a letter of condolence to the Okawa family. He was a man of great vision, who dedicated his energy and his many abilities to whatever task he undertook. He always maintained a very strong sense of responsibility. Mr. Okawa was always ready to listen and explore new ideas. He was an inspiration to the younger staff as well as management of Sega. He was a man with charisma who loved music and good conversation.
the afterlife. So what happens after you die? First things first, the price drops to $99. You know how it is. Put that on my tombstone. <laughs> now $99. <laughs> Down now. from $150. My launch Free. lineup is going to be a little sparse, though. Free with an online service subscription. <laughs> so Sega and other publishers still release games in retail stores up until 2002, with the last formal Dreamcast game published in 2007 in Japan. It's called Kairos, and it's pretty good. Plans to release the Dreamcast platform as a computer chip died soon after, pretty much soon as they were announced. And Sega decides to pivot away from the Dreamcast entirely, dedicating themselves to becoming a premier software developer. They close two years later and are bought by Sammy, a company that makes pachinko machines and the like. Kind of like Sega. But here's the thing. Dead ain't dead in comic books, and real life is comic books, my friend. We live in comic book world, which means that the Dreamcast ain't really dead, and the blue skies will last forever. Look, if you're a devoted Sega junkie, you should go check out some of the GameWorks locations scattered throughout the U.S. and even other places in the world, too. They're like these weird arcade restaurant hybrids, but they have a ton of Sega games, and it's like they're like little Sega museums. Seattle, Las Vegas, Colorado, Minnesota, Chicago, Cincinnati, Virginia, all have one still. Sega's got a big presence at, at like round one arcades, if you have one of those near you. Yeah. Um, a lot of Japanese-only uh, only Sega titles like the... Uh, like the Rambo uh, light gun shooter, which is absolutely choice. I Please play that if you have a chance. If you've never heard the Rambo rap, you are really missing out. Yep. <laughs> and of course, we got to talk the criminals. That's why we're here, baby. And the criminals, let me tell you what. You've got a rabid Sega fan base that is eager to keep this dream alive, to keep this, this promise of the Dreamcast ready. And, like, literally the most notoriously easy-to-pirate console in the history of mankind. That's one of the Dreamcast legacy. So where do we go next? First things first, the Dreamcast has some emulation selection. And, in fact, the Dreamcast got known for emulation while it was still on retail shelves when a company called Bleem made PlayStation 1 emulators for the Dreamcast for stuff like Tekken and Metal Gear. And it upscaled it into an HD signal, which is pretty nice. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, was brought down an IP court and can be found easily online. <laughs> That's not the only emulation you can do either. You start seeing this proliferation of Dreamcast black market stuff because the Dreamcast is on Windows. And because it's on Windows, it's easy to dev for and it's easy to port to. Mm -hmm. And so you've got not only the previously mentioned PS1 emulation, but import boot disks, VCD players, Super Nintendo, NES, sketchy Genesis emulation, and then on pirated copies of Dreamcast games. Those are all live in like 2000 before the system is actually off the shelf. The, the hackers had gotten their fingers into the system long before it died. And then indie developers started developing for the system after it died. And Sega just kind of went, okay, whatever, dude, cool with me. But I think there's something like 20 plus Dreamcast games that have been formally released for the Dreamcast after it has died. Uh, I am looking at the, the Wikipedia page here. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, Steph, just if you can extend this, make it sound like I count a lot higher than I am. <laughs> Steph, if you could uh, make the audience believe I know higher than the number 12. <laughs> <laughs> if I only go back to twenty to like the beginning of 2016, I'm already at 27. Holy shit. So we're talking almost 100. 
I would imagine, because you're seeing games pop up in 03 and 04. Like 12 that are announced and haven't come out yet. Jeez. So this means the system's still up and running, even though it's 20 years old. That's pretty incredible. And I will say, if you're interested in getting your hands sturdy, maybe doing some hacking of your own, there's literally no better place to start than the Dreamcast. It is so easy to get yourself a used Dreamcast and clean it up. Now, the most common repair issues with Dreamcast that you're looking at will be a power supply failure of some type or perhaps a disk drive failure. Mike, I know that you and I have run into Dreamcasts with these problems before. Yep. Uh, I've got a Dreamcast that just died from an optical drive not working, period. For all my old consoles, um, I've sworn off trying to repair or um, or like burn games for uh, anything with an optical drive just because it's to the point now where like lasers are failing and while you can get replacements, uh, it's it's hard to find the right discs to burn and the right burners to burn them on to get those things working. I think when the, when when burning games for these systems first became a thing, it was not a huge deal because everything, all the discs and um, and drives that you needed were contemporary and readily available. I mean, it's still hard to find the right one, but mm-hmm. if you once you found the right one on a forum, you could buy it. Now that's just not, it's just not the case. And um, after beating my head against my Dreamcast for a long time, I, I, <laughs> I decided to like, to tear out, tear out the optical drive and go with one of the um, replacements on the market, an optical drive emulator. So this is uh, probably new to a lot of people who don't do console modification. But what is an optical drive emulator? It's essentially, it's exactly what it sounds like. The In systems like the Dreamcast and the GameCube, the, the optical drive is like a modular unit that's uh, held in by like a connector and some screws. So you take those screws out, you slide it out of the connector. And this is like a device that you put in its place that communicates with the rest of your system and says, hey, I'm an optical drive, nothing to see here. But really, on the other side of it, it's you've got a, either a hard drive or an SD card or a USB, a USB drive hooked up to it. And it's loading those things in as if it were loading a disk and communicating that stuff back to your uh, back to your system. There's a few few benefits to that. Of course, obviously, you can put everything on a hard drive and have it all on your system. But also, you can eliminate some nuisances like seek time. Well, and also, uh, if we're talking long-term storage, it's so much safer than having an optical eye stressed every time you turn the system on. Yeah, even if your drive is working, like it's a, you could just tear it out. And if you run into a situation where you just need that laser, you know, you've always got it and you know that you haven't been stressing it this whole time. Absolutely. And, and it's pretty easy to install. It's, you don't need to do any soldering. You don't need to have any sort of electrical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I would say that you'd probably end up paying somewhere between like 75 to 200. Yeah. There's a lower, lower range ones on Amazon's and the more uh, high quality ones like the Terra Onion mode are, are about two hundies. Now, if your power supply is going bad and that would usually come with if the system doesn't turn on or if you have repeated resets, that's also pretty easy to fix. You could always gut a working Dreamcast. The power supply can be swapped out and swapped in without any sort of electrical knowledge pull it out of some pins and push the new one on some pins. But you could also go on eBay and buy something called the Pico PSU, which would uh, offset a lot of the heat created within the Dreamcast and change it into more of like a laptop style charger. It's much, much better for the long-term health of the system. That's like 30 bucks and it's also dirt simple to install. I didn't hear if you mentioned the, the heat issue, but most of the heat in the Dreamcast comes from the, the power supply. Uh, so by, by putting this much smaller little module in your, in your system and taking the actual um, power supply unit outside to a brick, um, you mitigate a lot of that heat inside the system and increase the longevity of the rest of your components. 
for sure. Now, Mike, do you want to tell the audience about the like the ultra lux option? Let's say you want to go real fancy with the Dreamcast and put an HDMI port in that bad boy. Citrus three thousand PSI, uh, as as he's known on uh, on Twitter, Dan Kuntz makes the uh, makes a used to be called DC HDMI now now known as DC Digital, and it's basically like a little FPGA, which we've talked about those before, built into a board that you you put underneath your Dreamcast motherboard. And then you solder some ribbon cables to your Dreamcast and it hijacks that like 100% digital signal before any of the analog conversion of the AV out happens and allows the this little board to upscale that signal to, all the way up to 1080p and output to a, to a regular TV, um, which, yes, your TV can do some upscaling if you were to just plug in your, your composite cable or even your VGA in some cases, but there's generally there's going to be latency and things involved in that. And the signal is not going to be nearly as clean as a special made solution like this. Well, not only that, but the, the internal graphics of the Sega Dreamcast were actually much higher resolution than TVs were capable of at the time. And so what you're upscaling is actually very clean. It looks very nice. These Dreamcast games look like they were made and put on steam yesterday. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I didn't, I don't know where my (laughs) composite cable is for this thing. Um, But if I ever find it, I'm going to light it on fire. So that let that be a warning to you, composite cable. If you're listening, if I find you, swear to God. <laughs> and uh, I'll be sending you one of those DC digital kits to install in my Dreamcast soon. So maybe we can do something with that on the stream. That'll be fun. Yeah, I would love to fuck up your Dreamcast on stream while you're forced to watch. Fuck me up, baby. <laughs> now, let's say you're watching your wallet and you don't want to go all turbo nerd. You could always emulate the Dreamcast through programs like RetroArch or Null DC. Dreamcast emulation isn't perfect, but it is doable, and especially in a mid-range gaming PC, you'll be pretty good. Alternately, grab a Dreamcast yourself, and if you've got a low-grade CD drive or something, you can always try burning them. They just take CDRs. Dreamcast performance on the Raspberry Pi 4 is is phenomenal, by the way. It's not 100% perfect, but, uh, I mean, you get a Raspberry Pi 4 and get... Um, a decent uh, kind of like fan to cool that processor down. And it's, I mean, it's with the stock overclocks on it, you can be playing Dreamcast and you'll barely notice the difference. Which means you could slap together a little homemade console emulator and uh, for relatively cheap and basically run everything off of a flash drive or something. Mm -hmm. That's pretty nice. Now we'll be coming back right after this with game reviews, baby. Jay here. I know that I've been talking a lot this episode, but I have a little something to say. You're going to hear me over and over again in this show emphasizing the importance of playing games with your loved ones, preferably. And that stuff is all true. But if I'm going to be real, I have an ego, and this show also exists to provide me a mind palace. Not Bachman, though. Fuck him. The world is his mind palace, and we're all just kind of living in it. I have a really intense personal connection with the Dreamcast. I actually um, moved several burned Dreamcast games throughout high school in the rural Michigan excerpts. And once I stopped indulging myself on sour candy and books from garage sales, 
I would put that money aside in an old snuff box. I didn't have a lot of money at this time in my life, and I was alone a lot. I didn't have cash. I wasn't rich. Just kind of stuck of being on a holding pattern of 20 or 30 bucks in my pocket at a time. Until I got the chance to head to Morocco as part of the United Nations World Youth Congress. Sort of like a diplomatic festival where a bunch of teenage activists from around the world come together to debate world issues and present a slate of concerns to the UN floor. It was about as colonial a thing as a confused white queer person can do short of joining the U.S. military, looking for meaning around the world instead of inside of yourself. Those contradictions still eat me up today, even if I know how inconsequential the whole thing ultimately was. I guess to have some kind of paper record that I anti-hegemony in case I ever need to win an argument on Twitter. I paid for that trip by selling bootleg Dreamcast games and movies burned on a, a Dreamcast-friendly format. It was the post-Napster age, and nobody with any amount of power gave a shit. I sold games to my high school teachers. I wasn't selling this shit. Driven by a desire to, like, stick it to Sega, it was the exact opposite. The stuff that the Dreamcast showed me was a bigger world than the one I lived in. The one where I got to talk about these games with the people in other countries, where I got to, where I got exposed to art and music that I wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. And, and let's not forget, I have Sega brain poisoning. There is a promise somewhere of the eternal blue sky, the blue skies forever. I just knew there was a bigger world than that, than the one I lived in. <laughs> I'm bullshitting you. I'm just as susceptible to anyone else to historical revision. And it's easy to develop really intense personal, emotional relationships with art. You take that art inside of you and you let it define who you are. But I'm going to be honest. I would have been yearning for those blue skies no matter what. And I probably would have found another way to yearn. It's not that, the, that Sega is some apex company or the Dreamcast was the aesthetic peak of art designed by perfect humans. Who gives a shit? You don't win anything when you write about that stuff. That's all magical thinking, too. Spend your life planning for an escape, and you'll find yourself in the Moroccan desert, questioning your place in the world, without the help of high-quality hashish. I use a lot of harsh, cult-like descriptors of Sega fans in this episode, but feel free to replace the word Sega with any other media property. Disney people, Nintendo obsessives, fans of the Game Crimes podcast. Fandom as an identity will break your heart. Your one hyper-specific, emotionally charged feeling about art, your perspective on art, is one of bajillions and might only ever serve as a topic to cover when you're just bullshitting with friends. That's good! We're not doing anything different on this show. And you'll notice that we really try to promote community efforts to preserve and celebrate games. The social connection is the point. Just as soon as I was feeling all sorry for myself in the desert. A few days passed and my chin that was tucked and looking at the, the ground was able to look up and see the beautiful orange and coral of the Moroccan countryside. I was able to take in the smell of fields and fields and fields of mint. You ever stood in a mint field while the wind, the warm wind, moved around you? It's pretty good. I shuffled on back to the camp after standing in that mint field and I bonded with a handful of people that were already there. They, they were playing with the Neo Geo Hyper 64, a, a, a 3D arcade machine that was on the 
campus of where all of the activists were staying. And when I was sitting there at that Neo Geo, I was making friends with people I will never talk to again. Each one of them talking enthusiastically about games and what roles that games have in their life. I'll never be able to see them. I'll never be able to visit that. It turns out that, that sometimes loving art, just loving it, just being there, and, and sharing that enthusiasm with the world around you can be its own reward. That's what it was like there that day. It was, was its own reward to like games because I was able to find people I would have never otherwise found. Grateful for that. But you can't lose sight of the rest of the world around you, you know? All that Blue Sky Arcade fun goes away. And it went away for me like 20 minutes after I first talked to my first person at the arcade because a fight broke out in the diplomacy tent. Game reviews, it's time to get to the meat, the fun stuff, the games we actually play, the games we play on our stream, which you should check out over at twitch.tv backslash game crimes. We have done Dreamcast modifications on stream for y'all to check out. We walk you through it. We open the system up. You look at the guts. But most importantly, we play a couple of games afterwards, and now we're here to talk about them and talk about whether or not you should check them out first game we have to cast down your pod is Xeno Crisis, a game released for the Dreamcast in 2020, question mark, exclamation point. Like you're saying, there's, uh, there's still, there's still a uh, scene where people are just making games for these old consoles. I think it's, is it, it's fair to say it's illegal, right? But just Sega doesn't give a shit. Well, I mean, it, yes and no. It depends on whether or not you consider stuff like licensing to be a formal law, when in the most part, it's a contract between parties. That's fair. That's fair. So if Sega decides that you don't need a license to publish on their console, there's nothing illegal about it. Probably more that they just haven't said anything one way or the other about it, right? At this point. That's what I was thinking, but like apparently some of these post-mortem Dreamcast games were made available on like the Sega JP online store. Oh, wow. But this game feels like it's made in 2020 because it has all the bells and whistles that you'd expect, but um, it is very pretty. It's like very crunchy 2D pixel-based take on Smash TV you've played a game like that or maybe it's reminiscent of some twin stick shooters which you're probably probably sets off an alarm when we're talking about the dreamcast to mention a twin stick shooter <laughs> <laughs> you have the face buttons and in a pinch they'll do the stick is in your mind folks yeah i think if you take this as just sort of like a top-down co-op shooting game you'll have a hell of a lot of fun absolutely and my impression of this game because you spun this on me i had never checked it out before is that it's really, really, like, to me, emblematic of what the Dreamcast is all about these days, which is this sort of, like, cultivated aesthetic. It's, it's I want a, a fast, arcadey game. I don't really care if, um, you know, it's a Steam bestseller or whatever. I'm going to release it to a bunch of different consoles and see if it can find a home amidst, amongst all the weirdos. I would imagine that if this was someone's first 2D shooter, it would be pretty overwhelming. It's, it's very fast and very hard. I mean... 
Mm -hmm. by no means my first 2D shooter, and I struggled to get past the second stage. So I would say if you're unfamiliar with the sort of like fast twitch hyperkinetic games, it might not be for you. But I, I think shooters are one of the most rewarding genres to spend some time on. And I loved this game. Like, I loved this game. It's so pretty, first off. The, the sprite work is really impressive, but also the controls are super responsive. You've got this sort of like evasion mechanic that requires really fast button presses. And I, I don't know. I, I, I was really struck by how much effort really went into this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's wild. I mean, this is, this game was also on, um, is also on the Genesis. <laughs> it's on the Neo Geo, uh, AES MBS. <laughs> it's of course on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, I believe Switch also and then steam so it's it's all over the place but uh there's you know there's subtle differences like you would expect uh from a game that came out when these systems were new like the genesis version has has slightly different music than the dreamcast version uh dreamcast version features voiceover for the cutscenes. the genesis doesn't the more time and distance i've spent from playing this game the more i'm impressed by it because i don't think every game needs to be a full triple a production to be enjoyed and this is a game just by some people who really enjoy this type of game as someone who has lost a decent chunk of my life to playing Smash TV, and this game is very, very similar to that, this game was like an A-plus for me. Um, I love how fast it is. I love fast twitch shooters. There's a lot of glee in how many bullets you actually shoot in this game and how many things you get to blow up. Mm -hmm. It is sort of like, all right, I might only spend 20 minutes and I'll die on level two, but I'm going to blow up a lot of people. And I'm, I'm going to get a lot of those really like corny, silly looking 3D guts shooting all over the screen. And <laughs> it's such a pleasant experience. Also, the music. I thought the music was great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The music slaps for sure. Eurobeat, very heavy, very dancey, very emblematic of the time, too. That sort of like 2000s breakbeat shit. Do you think that the audience here should check this out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not something that like that I've really stuck with, um, but it's. It's kind of an example of like uh, of like what can be done from like developers on old hardware with the um, with the benefit of, you know, years of experience beyond that hardware. Oh, for sure. And just like the idea that these things are still made um, makes it worth it to check them out. Just because these games aren't popular anymore doesn't mean they were perfected. Right. Like there's still places to go. There's still uh, avenues for new developers to jump around. in. Yeah. And I think like I think the other thing is like you look at these you look at these uh, these games and you're like, yeah, it's a game for a retro system. And you have this kind of feeling that like you've seen everything that system has to offer. But somebody just ported the first level of Sonic to Super Nintendo <laughs> and it like it it plays the same without blast processing. <laughs> I don't I don't think we've we've come close to seeing what these systems were truly capable of. Um we just needed the the benefit of time which we have now. So it's it's really worth it to check out these uh new games for old systems. I would agree. Uh, I think this one is going to take a lot of people by surprise because it is going to feel like an arcade game. It is going to feel like you went and slapped some quarters down and you got 5 minutes and then had a good time. Mhm. Mm I would say you should definitely check this out if you already like shooters. This is a little too frantic um, and a little too high twitch for, for the average person who isn't familiar. But if you are familiar with stuff like Geometry Wars, Smash TV, etc., this is a great treat. It's very fun. It's very crispy. Yeah. Lots of explosions. Lots of fun.
the next game we played was called Napple Tail. Hell yeah. This was when I sprung on you. Napple Tail is a 3D platformer that was released uh, in Japan by Sega of Japan for the Dreamcast in 2000. It was only recently translated into English uh, by some ROM hackers. So it's got a brand new audience as of 2019. Design team for Napple Tail was specially put together for Napple Tail and consisted of primarily women uh, who had worked on other Sega games. And so you had a, a game led uh, for the first time within Sega by women, and it was uh, for the intent of creating uh, games that specifically appealed to young girls. It's a platformer that's like, it's it's pretty loose. Like if I were to just play this without any of the surrounding context or or story or anything like that, I don't I don't know that it would that it would grab me mm-hmm. very well. But I think that everything about like the story and the characters uh, is so bizarre. Yeah. This game, that it's like it, that that I'm hooked and I'm and I'm going through that uh, those those uh, platforming elements which are enjoyable enough. I don't want to make it sound like that platforming is a chore, but like going through those things you know, with the promise of being rewarded by more mayor frog car uh, <laughs> is like, it, it's crazy. And the story is wild. I mean, it's, I haven't played it since our stream. I need to go back and finish it. But like, if I remember correctly, you have that, like, there's like this, uh, this small, like sprite, like flying character that like drags you into what I'm going to describe as hell, <laughs> yep, yep. like incorrectly, like got, got the wrong person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The Grim Reaper basically done fucked up. Yeah, and and so now you, as that person who's been drugged unwillingly into this afterlife, try, are trying to find a way out, and you you force the Grim Reaper. You're like, look, you got me into this mess. You need to help me get out of it. And that's kind of the 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 main like crux of the story. And that's just like that whole concept is just I I'm here for it. It's got me hooked. <laughs> well, and also we should add the aesthetic of this game because I like when I say girls games, you might get the impression of like I don't know Barbie's Equestrian Challenge or whatever. But this is meant to look like a children's storybook in this sort of like weird abstract sense. There's a little um, nightmare clown vibe going around. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about that is that it's actually presented in sort of an adventure game package. Like you, you go to the town and you talk to people and then you go to your platforming sections and you come back and they have new things to say. Maybe you opened a school in town because you, you got a side item or something. And like Mike would say, the, you, the world is filled with characters you might be laughing at the name Mayor Frog Car, but there's nothing to fucking laugh about. All right? That, that's a literal name. That's not a non sequitur. <laughs> you Google Mayor Frog Car right now, and then you leave me a voicemail apologizing for laughing at me. <laughs> this game is so filled with personality. The character that we're talking about is literally a, a, a mayor who is a big frog who is driving around in a little car that is much too small for his body. No, there's one thing I did not mention yet, which I think any of you anime nerds in the crowd are really going to appreciate. The music for this game is done by modern jazz hero composer Yoko Kano. You might know her from the seatbelts. You might know her from writing the fucking Cowboy Bebop theme song. Come on. You might know her from breaking up the Beatles. (laughs) That was Mayor Frogcar, actually, Mikey. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Just a picture of John Lennon nude with his leg on Mayor Frogcar's front bumper. (laughs) Do you think our uh, listeners should be playing Napple Tail, Mike? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's like it's 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 got you know a, a weird um, a weird story that I just I don't think is like I can't I can't come up with another with an, another story like it. Maybe the you know the Cuba Gooding Jr. 
<laughs> what Dreams May Come. Is that a Robin Williams movie too, I think? That is a Robin Williams movie, yes. Yeah, I don't think this is anything like that. So if that's what you're looking for, um, don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you were looking for a video game adaptation of What Dreams May Come, this ain't it. It's just this really wild, interesting story with bizarre characters. It's, it's, a, it's a fever dream in all the best ways. I don't think the platforming is going gonna, is gonna to blow your mind, but it's, it's not a bad part of the ride. No, and it's generous, too. It's not like it's super hard or anything. Yes, absolutely not. So I think y'all should definitely play that. I would consider the Napple Tale to be a forgotten masterpiece of the Dreamcast. Like one of the most important games of the past 20 years for me. Not because it's so influential or because there's all these Napple Tale clones out on the market or whatever, but because it doesn't have any of that cultural weight with it. It's just another forgotten Dreamcast game. And not every novel is a bestseller right after its release. Not every film that makes a lot of money is good. Sometimes the rest of the world needs to catch up to, to art that, that has a vision of the future. And I think Napple Tale is one of those. <laughs> and before Napple Tale becomes required playing at a gamer school. <laughs> the Bachman Gamer Academy. Yeah. <laughs> if you're kind of like not sure what to think when you're looking into the past, if you don't have the same sort of Sega nostalgia goggles that a lot of people do, a game like Napple Tale will show you why people have such intense emotional investment in this publisher and the games they make. Because they're unique. There's nothing else like it. You owe yourself to, if not check this out, check out one of the the dozen other amazing Dreamcast games that have like a similar future-looking approach towards design and, and, and art. There's nothing like it. <sighs> All right! All right. And that is episode three of Game Crimes, the life and afterlife of the Sega Dreamcast. And if we broke your heart with this episode, then good. We'll rebuild it together. If you haven't checked out twitch.tv backslash game crimes for the state of the art video stream, you're missing Bachman's modding tutorials, Q&A sessions, first impressions of the games we review here. What was the uh, show that we just did for GeeklyCon Digital, Mike? Yeah, we uh, played uh, we played Pit Fighter for the Sega Genesis in as many ways as we possibly could. <laughs> just kind of uh, <laughs> used it as a case study for different ways to, to emulate retro games. Uh, so we played it on uh, Genesis. We played it on. Um, we tried played it on a Genesis emulator on PC. On one on the Mister and FPGA. We did it on the analog Mega SG. We also did it inside of DOS through the Genesis emulator with that DOS environment being run on the Mister FPGA, and it ran awful. So <laughs> yeah, that's that is a nightmare zone. We should be clear. Pit Fighter is not a good game, mm. and. We showed you the most hellish versions of this game. So, look, if all you're looking for is crazy video game stuff to look at, we got that in droves, but it also serves as kind of an Emulation 101 episode. So definitely check out stuff. We've got a lot of exclusive video content that if you enjoy the show, you will definitely enjoy our Twitch stream. Now, stick your fucking hands up and give us all the five-star reviews you got and put them right there in this iTunes store. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't move. <laughs> None of you's move. Just, uh... Yeah, you better click those five stars. All right, I see you clicking. You're good. You're good. We're good. <laughs> Come back for next episode, episode four, where we celebrate a true trans game rebel in Game Crimes episode four, Heroes of Games, Danielle Buntenberry. Catch you next time. Hell yeah. <laughs>